0: Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you this evening. Mm-hmm. It's the first time that uh, I have been in this part of Texas, and it's today a beautiful part. We enjoyed ourselves out in the field service today, and we're looking forward to in, in October and tomorrow. The subject the field is the world, Gets us to Jesus' words, that the
1: Christianity,
0: which started in Palestine, would uh, spread to the uttermost parts of the world. He said in Acts 1 8 to his disciples, you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, to, in Sumer, Judah, Samaria, and to the uh, most distant parts of the earth. And in, uh, in Matthew 24:14, he said this good news of the kingdom will be preached throughout all the inhabited earth as a witness to all nations. Now, the spread of Christianity to engulf the entire earth is also demonstrated for in the parable or illustration of the wheat and the weeds or heath and the pears. and uh, we'll read that in a moment but basically this illustration speaks of a man who planted uh, fine seed or wheat in a field and then after men slept an enemy came and sowed weeds, or the pear or the bearded darnel in the field it looks something like wheat when it grows up and then these grew up together and then finally at the conclusion of the harvest time the harvesters came in and separated the wheat from the wheat and brought the wheat into the storehouse and the wheat were burned and jesus explained this as uh, the planting of true christianity in the first century he was a good man finding the sons of the kingdom in the field which was the world not just palestine and uh, then the enemy satan came and planted false of Christians, imitation Christians, in there so that as they grew up together, you couldn't really see the difference for a while. And then at the harvest time, the angels, who are the reapers, would separate all the weeds, the false Christians, out and bind them in bundles to be burned, separating their identity from the wheat. And then the wheat would be brought into the storehouse, uh, the, the kingdom of their father, and they would let their light shine as the brightness of the firmament. So we can see that this illustration deals with the development of true Christianity from the first century right down to the conclusion of the system of things. And it has great significance to us because we're living at the harvest time. Now Jehovah's Witnesses claim that uh, their activity today is sharing in the fulfillment of that harvest work mentioned in this illustration. And that the anointed ones sharing, uh, taking the lead in the work of jehovah's witnesses are in fact the remaining ones of the wheat class the sons of the kingdom and therefore we today are in fact the successors the 20th century successors of the first century christian uh, congregation now there are a lot of people that acknowledge jehovah's witnesses uh, are zealous they are faithful and believing in the bible they show zeal in preaching. They constitute a worldwide brotherhood. They maintain high standard of morality and holiness, but they fail to see any historical connection between Jehovah's Witnesses of today and Christians of the first century. And uh, they, our, our work, seems to them more like some organized house-to-house work rather than some religious or spiritual activity. Now, uh, they talk of their historic churches, such as the Catholic Church or the Anglican or sometimes the Lutheran Church speaking, that their uh, symbol of recognition is their historical connection with the first century. They talk about apostolic succession. Uh, some years ago, uh, Time Magazine had an article about the problems between the Anglican and the Catholic Church, this was back in uh, December 24, 1973, and one of the issues, involved was this matter of apostolic succession. And the Time Magazine described that, that the legitimacy of a Christian church, according to this doctrine, depends on a direct linkage with the first apostles. And Catholics interpret this that their current generation of bishops were ordained by an earlier generation of bishops, who were ordained by an earlier generation of bishops in unbroken succession to their back to the apostles. And hence they claim to be you could imagine according to time magazine it says it, it's sort of like an ecclesiastical two thousand year relay race in <laughs> which the apostles passed the bishop baton on generation after generation down to the current time but then it went on to say here that this conference of the anglicans and the catholics concluded that historic continuity wasn't the big thing they agreed that historical continuity in a church is ensured more by its fidelity to the teaching and mission of the apostles and of course that's where we want to get in what constitutes historic continuity the legitimate claim of a church to be the true church now others today who do not claim historic continuity back to the apostles talk about the gifts, the charismatic churches they have the gift of healing they speaking in tongues and so on and they say that this is what constitutes evidence of a true church and jehovah's witnesses have neither this unbroken historic continuity back to the first century and they don't have the the gifts of healing and speaking in tongues therefore they can't be the true church and many churches speak of jehovah's witnesses as a new religion or they call us a 19th century religion or an american religion you run into that in europe especially a brooklyn-based religion founded by an american haberdasher Now that's the way they sum us up. Now the question is, how can we prove our claim that we are the 20th century successors to first century Christianity? And then they ask the question, why then, if it's true, did the restoration of their work begin in the United States, rather than some more cultural country or maybe the Middle East? And why should their headquarters be, of all places, Brooklyn? So all of this creates problems in the minds of some. And so the question, how can we prove our real historic connection and prophetic identity with the first century Christians? And how can we explain to those we study with and build up their faith? Well, we can do this, among other things, by referring to this illustration of the wheat and weeds, which is found, recorded in Matthew chapter 13. We'll read from verse 24 through 30, Matthew 13 and 24 through 30. Another illustration he set before them, saying, The kingdom of the heavens has become like a man that sowed fine seed in his field. While men were sleeping, his enemy came and oversowed weeds in among the wheat and left. When the blade sprouted and produced fruit, then the weeds appeared also. So the slaves of the householder came up and said to him, Master, did you not sow fine seed in your field? How then does it come to have weeds? He said to them an enemy a man did this they said to him do you want us then to go out and collect them he said no that by no means by no chance while collecting the weeds you uproot the wheat with them let both grow together until the harvest and in the harvest season i'll tell the reapers first collect the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them up and then go to gathering the wheat into my storehouse now jesus His own interpretation of this begins in verse 37. The sower of the fine seed is the son of man. The field is the world. As for the fine seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. But the weeds are the sons of the wicked one, and the enemy that sows them is the devil. The harvest is a conclusion of a system of things, and the reefers are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are collected and burned with fire, so it will be in the conclusion of a system of things. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will collect out from his kingdom all things that cause stumbling, and persons who are doing lawlessness, and they will pitch them into the fiery furnace. There's where their weeping and the gnashing of their teeth will be. At the time, at that time, the righteous ones will shine as brightly as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let him that has ears listen. So this is the illustration. The sower is the son of man. The field is the world. And this is going to have significance to answering all these other questions we raised. The wheat are the sons of the kingdom, true worshippers. The weeds are the sons of the wicked one, the false planted by Satan, the enemy of Satan, the devil, harvest time, the conclusion of the system of things, and the reapers are the angels, the storehouse, the kingdom of heaven. So now we get the thing identified here. Well now, this planting of wheat, how did it begin? It began in the first century in Palestine, and it was started by Jesus and continued on with the apostles. Now, when Jesus sent out his uh, disciples there, and Matthew 10, among other things, he said, don't go off into the roads of Samaria or others, but preach to the lost sheep of Israel. So the planting began in a very limited field, the nation of Israel, and then expanded out to the Samaritans. And... um, then after the Samaritans uh, got the truth, uh, the circumcised Ethiopian eunuch or court official uh, got the truth from Philip, uh, and he brought it back to Ethiopia. So the field spread out then from Palestine to uh, northern Africa. Then in the year 36, Peter was serving in Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea coast, and he uh, had a dream. Sleeping up on the roof up there, he had a dream where he saw a large sheep being lowered from heaven, uh, with filled with unclean birds and animals, and he was told by the angel to kill and eat. And he rejected that idea because he'd never eaten anything unclean. But then the angel told him, "We're not really talking about food. Do not call unclean what God has made clean." And thereafter, he gets the message to go up to Caesarea, where there's some uncircumcised Italians who want to hear about the truth. So. Uh, that's what it was all about so Peter went up there and when he went into the home of this uh, Cornelius saw this these uncircumcised Italian people there he said for a certainty I perceive that God is not partial and uh, these then got the truth so the field was now spreading out to uncircumcised people of the nations, and then it also according to acts uh, 15 uh, acts uh, rather 10 uh, spread not only up there Uh, to the uh, the Caesarea, but over to Syrian Antioch, and uh, to that area, both to the uh, Greek-speaking people of the nations. And then it spread over to Asia Minor and to Rome, so now the field was spreading out. Then uh, 1 Peter 5 tells us about Peter apparently witnessing over in Babylon to the Jewish colony there, and uh, he's naturally speaking to Jews, but it's spreading out geographically then Paul had hopes of witnessing in Spain. We might look this up in Romans, because he uh, he writes his letter defending, uh, in Romans chapter 15, defending his carrying of the word out to the people of the nations, and then in verse 23 says um, in chapter 15, Now that I no longer have untouched territory in these regions, and for some years having had a longing to get to you, whenever i'm on my way to spain i hope above all when i am on the journey there to get a look at you and to be escorted part way there by you after i first in some measure been satisfied with your company so he mentions it only incidentally but his intention was to carry the kingdom message to the east coast of spain whether he made the trip or not we don't know but we know at least that the word discreet uh, spread to spain and then up to the south coast of england and perhaps by the second century, and then perhaps to Ireland a century or two later, so it was spreading out that way. Now about this time, the second century, and the third century, an apostasy was developing in the field, and a, a sowing of weeds began. Now we might look at Second uh, Thessalonians 2, where we read the illustration of the wheat and the weeds which says it would begin there after men fell asleep. Whether that means that man fell asleep spiritually, which is likely, or that the apostles had fallen asleep in death, in any case uh, there was a freer opportunity for false teachings to spread. In Second Thessalonians chapter two, concerning the presence of our Lord, Paul writes from verse three, let no one seduce you in any manner, because it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness gets revealed, the son of destruction. He has set up an opposition and lifts himself up over everyone who is called God or an object of reverence so that he sits down in the temple of the God publicly showing himself to be a God. And then in verse 6 he says, So now you know uh, the thing that acts as a restraint with a view to his being revealed in his own due time. True, the mystery of this lawlessness is already at work, but only till he who is right now acting as a restraint gets to be out of the way. Then indeed the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will do away with by the spirit of his mouth and bring to nothing by the manifestation of his presence. So what Paul is telling here is that this man of lawlessness is going to dominate the religious field right down until the return of our Lord because it's a deception promoted by Satan. And this is sort of the thought of the parable of the wheat and the wheat, that the wheat would dominate the field until the harvest. Now as to how this apostasy would begin, if we turn to Acts chapter 20 and get a little insight here, Paul is preaching to the elders, instructing the elders from Ephesus there in Miletus, the little harbor the village that he'd gathered them to, and after giving them a talk concerning their responsibilities, he says here in Acts 20 verse 29, I know that after my going away, oppressive wolves will enter in among you and will not treat the flock with tenderness. And from among you yourselves, men will rise and speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now this implies that the apostasy would actually begin from false overseers and shepherds who would, would actually be come under deception by Satan the devil and then start leading in a wrong direction now did this in fact happen yes it did after the apostles died then uh, the Antichrist the deception really came in there was for example up in Antioch uh, an early church father as he is called an overseer by the name of Theophilus and he began to promote a a concept of a triune God or the Trinity now there were a lot of others that had a hand in it but he sort of was the prime mover in the beginning of this concept and uh, down in, uh, actually, uh, he, his concept was trios, the Greek concept of the Trinity, and then he had a colleague in Carthage in North Africa, Tertullian, who, who promoted it under the Latin term Trinitus. And then about a century later, there was another uh, overseer from Alexandria by the name of Origen. He later moved up to Caesarea and set up an instruction school there, but he began to continue borrow from the uh, Greek philosophy which had taken it from Babylon a concept of the immortal soul now it wasn't well defined but the uh, origin advanced the thought of transmigration of the soul from one state to another implying an immortality now the problem in both these cases was that these men sincerely wanted to spread the preaching of christianity to people of the nations and they felt the best way to do it was to try to formulate Christian thinking and concepts in the language of the people. So they used Greek philosophical terms to try to explain Christian teaching, and they got led astray and, and came right into the trap that Satan had set for them. Now these false doctrines were not the weeds. The weeds were sons of the wicked one, but the false doctrines produced apostates. And got thinking that some of these overseers tried to ensure their permanent position in the congregation and so they set up a clergy laity system which has been one of the uh, identities of false religion right down to our day this division of the christian congregation and uh, then they got the support of the state so being a part of this world another characteristic of false religion now the weeds were planted and began to grow up and dominate the field but the field continued to expand now with a mixture of wheat and weeds. So uh, Christianity, or uh, false, you might say the mixture now spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now the Roman Catholic Church uh, was established with this apostate group by the early part of the fourth century. And you get up to about uh, 1200 to 1600 groups or congregations in southern Europe and North Africa by that time. Now, the Council of Nicaea, officiated by Constantine, was uh, an official acknowledgement of uh, the Trinity. Uh, Not so much all three, but the duality of God and Christ in laying the groundwork for uh, the full adoption of the Trinity a half century later. In the meantime, the Church also set up an administrative structure called the hierarchical structure and it was interwoven with state control, and they had four administrative areas under the Catholic Church. They're called Holy Sees, S-E-E-S, each with a hierarchy consisting of bishops, priests, and with a patriarch at its head. There was a Holy See or administrative area in Rome, another one in Constantinople, in Asia Minor, a third in Antioch, and a fourth one in Alexandria. So now there was competition between these four groups. And then what was happening in Rome was of interest. Uh, Constantine uh, decided to make himself the chief mediator with God, so he took the title Pontifex Maximus, which uh, literally means uh, the main chief, main bridge builder, if you want to call it that way, but it was the, the mediator between man and God. And he kept this title. But then in the year 375, a common heir his successor Gratian uh, conferred upon the Bishop of Rome Damasus spiritual authority over all the Western Empire under Rome and Damasus in all of his modesty and humility decided to take the title Pontifex Maximus so it was transferred from the political Emperor to the Popes. well then in the year 440 Leo I from Rome went further than Damasus, and he declared his position of supremacy over the entire church, east and west. Well, now, of course, the Eastern Seas and the Egyptian Sea didn't take to this, and so there was tension and competition and eventually a breaking away. Uh, By the uh, 5th century, the sea in Alexandria broke away and formed the Catholic Church, followed up by the Ethiopian breakaway, and then... Between the 5th and the 9th century, the Byzantine Revolt took place, and the Eastern Orthodox Church was formed with its own patriarch. So we see these things spreading out in religion, but now it was pretty well dominated by weeds. Nevertheless, there was an element of Christianity there. Now the Orthodox Church spread from uh, the, uh, Asia Minor and from Greece uh, up into Armenia and into Russia, And then people in Russia became interested in in this form of uh, apostate Christianity. Princess Olga, who was the wife of Duke Igor, was baptized in the year 955. And this caused a spread of this special mixture of wheat and weeds, the Orthodox Church, into Russia. And then her grandson, Vladimir I, decided to become a baptized Orthodox Christian in the year 987. Now, one history book states that Vladimir realized that he shouldn't just be considered a heathen Russian, he wanted to become an acceptable person in the world scene, knew he had to have some more acceptable religion, looked into the Muslim religion, but they had, uh, you couldn't drink alcohol and be a Muslim, so he backed off from that and looked into the Roman Catholic religion, and there were too many fast days, and since he liked to eat and drink, he decided to become an Orthodox. Uh, whether that's true or not, in any case, he made the uh, orthodox religion, the State Church of Russia, in the year 989. And they had a, a bishop in Kiev and a patriarch in Moscow, which became called the Third Rome. And interesting, while all this religion was spreading out, the Cyrillic alphabet, which had been created for certain languages by Bishop Cyril and his brothers, Spread throughout all these areas under the orthodox religion became the basic alphabet in various forms now in the meantime the Roman part of this church uh, spread out to encompass Spain Portugal England Ireland France Germany Poland uh, and dominated there with the Roman Catholic religion in the 10th century a Bishop Ansgar came up from Bremen and converted the Danes to uh, this uh, Roman form of the Weave and Weaves, and then the uh, religion spread to Sweden and Norway, and Finland became the state church of Finland in the 13th century, and then spread down the Baltic states throughout Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Now we see the field spreading out to all of Europe. Of course, this spread of of the Roman religion spread the Latin alphabet, or Roman alphabet, so you see that development. These are little evidences as to how the field spread out then in the 10th century there was a scandinavian a viking by the name of Eric the red who had uh, spread from scandinavia to iceland and then to the western hemisphere greenland now his wife was catholic although he wasn't but in narsak fjord in southern greenland he built the first catholic church in the western hemisphere and uh, that uh, of course has long since been abandoned but in any case It was the start of spreading the field with that particular mixture of wheat and wheat. Now, while all this was happening, uh, the Reformation started. Wycliffe in England, Tyndale, 14th century, Luther in the 16th century. It was said that on October 31st, uh, 1517, Luther prepared his 95 theses or accusations against the Church and nailed them to the door of his Wittenberg church. Whether he did that or not might be questioned in history, but at least his associates printed up copies of uh, this these species on the, the newly developed uh, printing with movable type and spread it throughout all of Europe and certainly had a big effect in Germany. And then another reformer by the name of Calvin from Switzerland in an area of Central Europe uh, spread his theories with his mixture of weaving and wheat. Luther emphasized you're saved by faith alone. Calvin emphasized faith but united with, with works, and so then you had the Lutheran trend and the Calvinistic trend which spread to Scotland and to the United States and Canada and influenced religious thinking here. Now the Reformation did bring some benefits. It brought more Bible distribution, more translations of the Bible in languages of the people. But the church teachings continued, basically Catholic and Protestant, to be a mixture with a little bit of wheat, uh, producing wheat, and uh, heavily dominated by thinking of wheat. There was no restoration of true religion, the wheat was not yet gathered for collective action, and it wasn't the harvest time. And this answers the question many ask, who ever heard of Jehovah's Witnesses before the last century? So how could you say to be the true religion? Well, during all these centuries wheat and weeds were mixed up together. The true religion wasn't to come to the poor until the harvest time. And then it would be obvious when they're gathered into the storehouse and let their light shine. All right, now we've seen just a little bit how the field spread throughout Europe. But how did it become to include the world of mankind? Jesus said the field is the world. How could that happen? Well, it can be seen in certain historical developments of uh, political, national, and commercial nature and actually in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And uh, what we're going to observe is an interesting thing is that although Satan has fought against true worship all the way through the centuries he even tried to to soak up and dissolve uh, the seed of Abraham by uh, having the Uh, Shechem and his uh, family absorbed the family of Jacob back then and that would have wiped out the lineage of the seed yet Jehovah never allowed true religion to be shoved off to some far uh, isolated corner of the earth and dropped out of sight the Israelites could have been taken captive by the Edomites and then disappeared with them they could have been taken by the Mongolians but the nation of Israel stayed in mainstream in fulfillment of prophecy. They were taken captive in Babylon when that was the focus. Persia took Babylon and the Israelites were returned to Palestine. The Romans eventually dominated there. But they were kept in mainstream when Jesus was born. And after that, true religion still didn't disappear into some far corner. But it was kept in mainstream where then the fulfillment of prophecies could take place. Now I mention that as a sort of a background so that we can see the significance of what happened. Now certain prophecies of Daniel help us to see how uh, the field spread out to include the world. So we might take Daniel chapter 2, because here Daniel is explaining a dream, but to show the background as to how Jehovah can uh, explain uh, the dream here, which which dealt with a development in world power, Daniel says in 2. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 20 let the name of God become blessed from time indefinite to time indefinite for wisdom and mightiness for they belong to him and he is changing times and seasons removing uh, kings and setting up kings giving wisdom to the wise ones and knowledge to those knowing discernment and he is revealing the deep things and the concealed things knowing what is in the darkness and within him the light does dwell so Daniel got the point and although you can't say all the earth's affairs are directed by jehovah he does set up kings and remove kings and do whatever he chooses to ensure the outworking of his purposes and the successful outworking now let's go over to daniel 7 where daniel had to dream this time from jehovah and the angels explaining it and uh, in verse 4 of chapter 7, uh, he saw several beasts in the vision. And uh, the first one was like a lion which had wings of an eagle, and then its wings were plucked out, stood on two feet like a man. And then it was followed up by a beast like a bear, and it had three ribs in its mouth. And in verse 6, then there was a beast like a leopard that had four wings of a flying creature on its back. And then verse 7 tells about a fourth beast, fearsome and terrible and unusually strong. And it had teeth of iron, big ones. It was devouring and crushing, and what was left it was treading down with its feet. And it was something different from all the other beasts that were prior to it, and it had ten horns. I kept on considering the horns, and look, another horn, a small one, came up in among them. And there were three of the first horns that were plucked up from before. and look there were eyes like the eyes of a man in this horn and there was a mouth speaking grandiose things so now this fourth beast has an unusual characteristic is that other things develop as a part of it or following it and suddenly three horns are plucked up and then this uh, fourth horn which is small it uh, gets eyes like a man and a mouth speaking grandiose things and then uh, verse 9 and 10 tell us about thrones placed in the ancient of days jehovah coming into the scene here with his sovereignty and then verse 11 tells uh, about uh, the beast which was speaking grandiose words and um, it killed it was killed and its body destroyed and given through the burning fire and the uh, rulership was taken away and given uh, taken away for a time and a season and then verse 13 tells us about one like the son of man who comes and who receives the kingdom verse 14 says to him there were given rulership and dignity and kingdom that the people's national groups and languages should all serve even him his rulership is an indefinitely lasting rulership that will not pass away in his kingdom one that will not be brought to ruin so now we get the picture that uh, this fourth beast leads in not to the coming of the Messiah, but to the establishment of the kingdom. And uh, then uh, verse uh, 19 says, uh, Then it was, well, verse 18 speaks about the Holy Ones of the Supreme One receiving the kingdom and taking possession of it. And then verse 19 says, Then it was, I desire to make certain concerning the fourth beast, which proved to be different from all the others, extraordinarily fearsome the teeth of which were of iron, and the claws of which were of copper, which were devouring and crushing, and which was treading down even what was left of its teeth. Now concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three fell, even that horn that had eyes and a mouth speaking grandiose things, and the appearance of which was bigger than that of its fellows. So he was looking at this beast and then it was prevailing against the holy ones so God's servants come into the picture here and are harassed by it and uh, then uh, verse uh, 21 says I kept on beholding when that very horn made war upon the holy ones and it was prevailing against them and uh, verse 24 says and as for the ten horns out of that kingdom there are ten kings that will rise up and still another one will rise up after them. And he himself will be different from the first ones, and three kings he will humiliate. And he will speak even words against the Most High, and he will harass continually the Holy Ones themselves as the Supreme One. And he will intend to change times and law, and they will be given into his hands for a time, times, and a half time. And then this beast is done away with, and the kingdom given to the Holy One. Well, now, we understand that this fourth beast comes into the picture first as the Roman Empire, but then it has ten horns or extensions. And these ten horns may well represent national groups which originally started out as provinces or extensions of the Roman Empire, but then who became national groups with their own uh, identities and national ambitions. Countries like Romania, Hungary, Austria, Spain, Portugal, Netherlands, France, Britain, all of which had some roots in Rome. Now, four horns are especially interesting to us in this case the tree that are plucked up by the little horn and the little horn that plucks them up. Now, the little horn is also going to harass the holy ones of God. This must be at a time when the holy ones are brought together in in a unity where they can be harassed as a group and um, we're going to see also something else interesting these three four horns all had interest in uh, what is called the new world or the western hemisphere the north american continent and the question was again how come that the restoration of true worship in the harvest time began in the north american continent Well, it has to do also with the way things developed and the way these four horns had their sights on the North American continent. Now, all four of these horns had real interest in the North American continent. Now, who were these horns? Well, we say that the three horns were Spain, Holland, and France. But why do we say that? Well, we'll make a little historic review of what happened here. And then we say that all these three horns will be plucked up by a little horn. and i notice the relationship all three of these horns have to be plucked up by the same little horn and the little horn has to have plucked up all three and uh, we say that and this little horn also has to harass the holy ones of god and we identify this little horn as beginning with britain and developing into the anglo-american uh, world power but now let's take a look back and see how things develop. Uh, over the centuries to see how these horns came into existence. There was a pushing on the part of certain nations uh, after Rome, for example, in the 8th century already, uh, the Vikings of Scandinavia were pushing eastward, and they got control of the Naper River and uh, actually exploited it clear down to the Black Sea and uh, the name Russia is actually a Viking word, the, the land of the Rus. And um, and then the Vikings also did something else. They flooded out of Scandinavia, down the uh, east coast of England and the west coast of France, clear down to Paris and clear down to Spain, plundering. But they never set up an empire. They never became a power. And uh, even when uh, uh, Leif uh, Erikson, the son of Eric the Red, went to Iceland and then to Vineland, wherever that was, somewhere in the Northern, North American continent, they never developed into a world power. And so they were not extensions of the Roman Empire, so they couldn't become part of these horns. They did a lot of action, but it, it fell outside of this Bible prophecy that we're dealing with. And interesting, they never really got credit for discovering the Western Hemisphere either. But now, one of our ten horns that we were talking about was Portugal, and it began to expand in the 15th century under Prince Henry, known as Prince Henry the Navigator. He had a a sea captain by the name of Diaz, who sailed around Cape Horn, South Africa, to the east in 1488 and again in 1491. And uh, he was followed up by Vasco da Gama, who sailed on to India and established a Portuguese Catholic colony in Goa. Now that is of significance because it was there Christ- the mixture of wheat and weed spread and it was there Christianity had its first and most rapid growth in India even among Jehovah's people. And then Bastard the Gama went over to Macau in China and there made a Portuguese colony there. And uh, then about this time as a result of this activity Columbus who was an Italian sailing for Spain, decided they wanted to get into the act, so he sailed over in, as we know, in 1492, and discovered uh, Watlands Island, perhaps, maybe it was Samana Cay of the Bahamas group, and he also discovered Hispaniola, where Dominican Republic and Haiti are located, and other islands, and this, con- this began conquest began a conflict between Spain and Portugal on territorial rights. So in 1493, Pope Alexander VI made this line of demarcation, which uh, he gave Spain everything west of it, and Portugal everything east of it for their colonies. And then Ferdinand Magellan began a round-the-world trip for Spain. And then in 1494, there was so much disagreement between Spain and Portugal that the Treaty of Tordesillas was signed, and that established the line of demarcation. Now, that has some significance in our, our talk because through these means, the special mixtures of wheat weed and weeds, the Catholic Church of Spain and of Portugal were spreading and establishing to certain parts of the world. This line of demarcation is the reason why Brazil speaks Portuguese and the rest of Central and South America speaks Spanish. There's some little historic development there. However, it was Spain and not Britain's little horn that pushed Portugal into the background and so we say Portugal was not one of the three horns, it was one of the ten. But while it was spreading out into Africa and uh, into the the, uh, Western Hemisphere, uh, it was spreading its mixture of wheat and weeds, the Portuguese uh, Catholic Church. But uh, Spain proved to be the first of our three horns that we're speaking about. Now it expanded to North America. Central and, and South America. There was Amerigo Vespucci, actually an Italian, but sailing for the Spanish, that in 1497 came along the Atlantic coast, sailed from the Chesapeake down to the Gulf of Mexico and Brazil. He didn't claim any territory, but at least we got his name for the Verrazano Bridge, or for Amerigo. Uh, America, we got the name from Amerigo Vespucci. And then there were other Spanish leaders that followed into mexico and peru Uh, there were men like pizarro and cortez and other spanish conquistadors who were out there after two things they were out after the gold and silver and tin of south america and central america to bring that back to spain and they used uh, as an appearance of holiness the claim that they were trying to convert the heathen to christianity so they did spread the their, their branch of the catholic church we still have evidences uh, of, of the Spanish influence. Uh, Hernando de Soto, who uh, was a Portuguese discovering for Spain, went through Alexa- uh, Alabama and Oklahoma, supposed to be the first man, white man, to discover the Mississippi, and then Ponce de Leon, governor of uh, Puerto Rico, conquered that, and then he sailed to the southeastern part of the United States looking for the Fountain of Youth. And he found a beautiful flowery area which he named in spanish florida meaning flower so spain became very wealthy in its trade with the gold and the silver it became actually the most powerful nation in the western world at that time with its huge spanish galleons continually bringing all this wealth back financing their armies and it became a very powerful nation and it left as a legacy in uh, even this country names like Rio Grande, San Antonio, Colorado, California, Sierra Nevada, Los Angeles, and so on. And the Spanish expansion was uh, an administration was uh, administrated by Catholic missions, not political entities. So especially in this way did the Spanish mixture of Catholic wheat and weeds, you might say come to dominate a great deal in the western hemisphere but spain was pushed into the background by a small nation britain now britain proved to be a little horn because at the time it was starting out it was smaller than each one of the three horns and yet it became bigger than all three of them put together these things were prophesying you see now britain actually enters history early as a province of the roman empire and then in the 3rd century, General Carousius the Roman governor of Britain, decided to proclaim independence and declared himself as emperor. But he only ruled for seven years, and he was murdered in 293 of our common era. So that was sort of the end of the first efforts of the British Empire. But Carousius became the father to uh, the British Navy, because his concept was not a navy built up of a lot of heavy ships such as the spanish later developed but a lot of fast maneuverable smaller ships which would have firing power and maneuverability and that became the concept of the british navy centuries later but even twelve centuries after carousius britain was a small horn not as big as any one of the three horns but then and its early expansion was not spearheaded by colonial expansion or military expansion but by sea buccaneers uh, commonly known as pirates Uh, these British sailors decided they wanted a a percentage uh, or a hundred percent of all the gold and silver and tin that the Spanish were bringing over so they built some fast maneuverable privateer ships and these pirate ships were well armed maneuverable and they sailed out on the Atlantic and they plundered all these Spanish galleons and took a great deal of that wealth to themselves. Such men as Sir Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, John Hawkins, Jeremy Thorpe, Humphrey Gilbert are some well-known names of history. They started out as buccaneers. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I uh, didn't interfere because they paid the British crown a certain percentage of the wealth they were getting, and uh, so they continued this plundering for quite a few years. And as a result of that, they build up Scores and maybe hundreds of pirate ships, which later became the basis of the British Navy for its expansion. Well, uh, 25 years of this, Spain got tired of it. Also, the Catholic rulership of Spain wanted to uh, uh, dam up the Protestant expansion in England. So, uh, King Philip got the um, Spain's wealth together, and they gathered 130 and uh, thousands of soldiers and they made their invasion of England. It stated that Sir Francis Drake and his navy was really in harbor in western England in the Plymouth area. And when the courier came and said the Spanish are sailing, Sir Francis Drake uh, says, well we have time, to his men were out on a large green grass plain playing a game called bowls. And he says, we have time to finish this game of bowls and beat the Spanish too. Well it was a little over optimistic but they did sail out with their faster ships and then the spanish armada tried to flee up through the english channel and they went into a port in belgium but rather than be cooped up there they decided to escape through the north sea and the bad weather and not the uh, navy ships of england really destroyed them so in the year 1588 the spanish armada was practically destroyed the remaining ships returned to spain And Spain was effectively kept out of North America, although they did keep some colonies in South America. But the way was open now for the French and the Dutch and the British to make claims in North America. And so before the end of the 15th century, the first horn was plucked up. The first king, uh, Spain, was humiliated. Now, Holland was the second of the three horns, or the Netherlands. And in the 16th and 16th, 17th century, they made their spread. But while Portugal and Spain were spreading out, they were spreading their religion. Indonesia, and also in the Caribbean area in the West Indies, uh, They formed the East India Company of uh, the Netherlands and really expanded. There was a Dutchman by the name of Dirk Hartog, and uh, Frederick Hartmann who first discovered Australia. Actually, it was named New Holland for a while. And uh, Abel Tasman uh, discovered uh, the island, which became Tasmania, and these men also discovered New Zealand, so uh, actually the Dutch were very much interested in that area, but they were more interested in the North American continent. In 1609, Henry Hudson, he was an Englishman, but sailing for the Dutch, sailed into New York Harbor and up the Hudson and claimed the whole area for the Dutch. Actually, the Dutch weren't the first to do that. Uh, Verrazano, uh, from Italy but sailing for France, a hundred years earlier had sailed up uh, Hudson River uh, and uh, up Long Island Sound and into Narragansett Bay, claiming the whole, uh, not claiming any territory, but uh, observing it for uh, France. And so uh, we did get the Verrazano Bridge uh, named after him. And a hundred years later then, Peter Minuit. Uh, Dutchman sailed up the Hudson and established Fort Orange in 1624. That later became Albany. And then he sailed down the Hudson, met with some Indians, and bought Manhattan Island for $24 worth of beads. And on the south end of Manhattan Island, he formed a colony called New Amsterdam. And then he declared the area in New Jersey and Connecticut up to the Connecticut River and southern New York and called it all New Netherlands. And the community on Manhattan is called New Amsterdam. And uh, so the Dutch were really interested. We still have evidences in the many Dutch names. Harlem, Amsterdam Avenue, uh, Brooklyn is uh, originally Buchaline, a Dutch name, Flatbush. Uh, uh, Bushwick was Bosty. Like. Yonkers uh, literally means the area of the young gentleman. Wallkill where we print our magazines, all these are evidences of the Dutch push. But the Little Horn was getting interested. And uh, the British had their Jamestown settlement as early as 1607, and then in Plymouth in 1620. And then it was that the British challenged the Netherlands in uh, New Amsterdam and took the city in 1664. And then they renamed it after the heir to the British throne, the Duke of York, and it became New York. So the Dutch influence was broken fairly early and uh, they did keep colonies in indonesia and the west indies but the second horn now was really plucked up in 1664 and uh, the second king was really used although the dutch had spread their calvinistic form of protestantism to all these areas and it left its influence you see that to this very day up in new york state the dutch reformed churches there still existed now our third horn was france And it began to expand first in Africa, the Middle East, into India, and into China. But then its eyes got focused on the North American continent. In the year 1524, Jacques Cartier sailed into the St. Lawrence River and established a colony on Gaspé Peninsula, and then later in 1605, Port Royal, Nova Scotia. Champlain followed up and established Quebec in 1608. So they were really working to get something going. And then from there, other Frenchmen, many Jesuits, sailed over primarily to claim the territory for France, but also to claim the people for the church. René de La Salle was one who moved west to Lake Superior, and uh, together with uh, Jacques Marquette, established Marquette, Michigan, and then de Salle sailed down the Mississippi River. and He was followed up by Louis Joliet, who pushed down and formed St. Louis, and then later to New Orleans, Louisiana, and they formed cities and claimed the whole area along the Mississippi and Missouri River as the Louisiana Territory. So now our third horn, France, had begun pushing in a dramatic way in the North American continent and spreading the Catholic religion, which is still much in evidence from Quebec, from northern Vermont and Manhattan, and in Louisiana, uh, New Orleans, we still have that French Catholic uh, influence. But there were many wars, both in Europe and North America, between Britain and France. And the French generally lost these French-Indian wars, as they were called. The Battle of Quebec fought on the Plains of Abraham, some will remember from their history. In the year 1759, there was the French General Montcalm and the British General Wolfe. Both generals were killed, but the French were defeated, and that really broke the back of the French expansion here. Four years later, they had the Treaty of Paris in 1763, and then at this treaty, France lost all of Canada and all of its influence in India to Britain. They did keep a little bit, but not a whole lot, around the world. And so the Columbian Encyclopedia says, from this date, 1763, the colonial and maritime supremacy of Britain began. And telling about Britain, the Watchtower, sort of summed up this history interestingly in an article of May 15, 1988. From two centuries of warfare with the Spaniards, the Dutch, and the French, Great Britain emerged in 1763 as the foremost commercial and colonial power in the world. Another historian says in 1763 the British Empire bestrode the world like some revived and enlarged Rome. She emerged from the mid-century wars, the greatest empire and the strongest, though likely the most hated power in the world. And uh, the statement is made that the Britons pressed up the Nile, across the Zambezi, and upper Burma, north Borneo, the islands of the Pacific. And then James Norris says, the Roman Empire was self-contained. The British Empire was broadcast across the earth it became the largest empire in the history of mankind encompassing a quarter of the earth's land service and more than a quarter of its population so this shows the tremendous expansion that took place in britain it's true 13 colonies along the west east coast of america rebelled gained their independence in 1776 but it wasn't more than three or four decades than they would Beginning to work together again as a united world power and then in the early part of the 18th century the united states bought off the louisiana territory and uh, at this time then france and spain didn't like what was going on so they gathered together under napoleon to fight off this defeat but he was defeated in our famous battle of waterloo in 1815 and then the same year the nations got together again and held the vienna congress which reshaped Europe and established a basis of peace for a hundred years until 1914. So this is the history of these horns and how they went. Now the little horn, as I mentioned, now became bigger than all three together and dominated, really, the whole world. It was said at that time that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And then they had this story that the British girl was bragging to the American girl that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And the American girl says, what a pity, in America we have such beautiful sunsets. (laughs) So, but anyway, it's true that Britain became the dominant factor. And in the 16th century then, Spain was plucked up, in the 17th century, Netherlands, and the 18th century, France. And uh, all of this resulted in movements of peoples. and as peoples and their languages spread and colonized all parts of the world and took their religion with them and so we had the spreading out of this world with each little particular mixture of what i call weed and weed it's these false and true doctrines that produced people of various sorts america for example was settled with all sorts of religious groups in jamestown virginia it was the anglicans that started there Plymouth, massachusetts the separatists the congregationalists And then in rhode island the baptists came and then the catholics settled in the chesapeake bay area and in 1634 maryland uh, baltimore lord baltimore founded maryland the quakers came to pennsylvania and uh, the german lutherans generally moved into pennsylvania uh, and the the italian slate quarry workers came there with their catholic religion The, the polish and slavic coal miners moved into that area with their Catholic religion. And then the Lutherans came and settled in the Midwest, of Scandinavia. And so we have the, the New England Yankees, they began developing the textile industry, and uh, while they wanted to manage, these Protestant Yankees wanted to manage the business, they wanted somebody else to do the work in the textile mills, so they opened the door for the Irish, the Italian, uh, the French, the Portuguese, and the Slavic peoples, to come in and work in that textile. now an interesting development here on religion the yankee families protestant families have an average of two children to a family these catholic families of these different nations average seven or eight children so it wasn't many generations until the little minority of catholic people became the dominant influence <laughs> in so this shows things that are happening in the field religiously the british empire uh, united with America also spread worldwide with missionary societies to develop their uh, spread of wheat and weeds. And they contributed a great deal to that with setting up Bible societies, getting Bibles translated in different languages. So the Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox religion spread in all parts of the world. Well, then uh, there was a great influx of people, as I mentioned, uh, from all parts of the world, to Canada, to the United States, so now the question, of course, arises, when the harvest was to begin, where and from among what people would the restoration or the harvest begin? Does it have to be Palestine? Well, the harvest time, the wheat was to be brought into the storehouse, that meant that the weeds were to be gathered into bundles and separated out so their their presence did no longer confuse the identity of the wheat they were to be prepared prepared for burning the wheat then was to be gathered together in a way that they could let their light shine in a collective identifiable action but now where should this restoration activity begin palestine where it started well back in the 1880s palestine was under the turks muslim and if you tried to spread bible christianity there you get your head cut off so that really wasn't a suitable friendly environment for the restoration of true worship begin. what about Syria and antioch asia minor also muslim same problem what about greece philippi thessalonica athens corinth of the first century but now in the 1800s greece was under the autocratic rule of the orthodox church Which had laws against any form of proselytism and which would put in prison anyone who would try to preach. So there was no friendly environment there for starting a restoration. And in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church dominated. And it wasn't until after World War II that you could really get Bibles in any amount in the Italian language. How about the lands of Reformation, Germany and England? Well, they certainly provided a great deal to the expansion of Bible knowledge, but nevertheless, the structure of both of these two countries at the end of the last century was not suitable for a restoration of true worship. And these nations were also too limited in their reaching of peoples. I mean, if you restored something in Germany, it would have been German people. If you restored it in England, at that time, it would have been British. But now what about the United States? The United States was a melting pot of people from all over the world. Now, they had come here uh, because they wanted religious freedom and freedom of thought. And uh, the United States also had people, as I said, they were open-minded. They wanted to get away from the old, so they were more receptive to new ideas. And uh, there were also constitutional guarantees of religious freedom and freedom of speech in the United States. And so there were very favorable conditions in the United States for a restoration work to begin. And since jesus said the field of the world he did not specify or limit where in that field the restoration might begin and so it seems historically sound that the united states had these favorable conditions now brother russell then began a sort of prepara- preparatory gathering of the wheat class in the 1870s and 1880s but he was not the you might say the total initiator or the beginner of these things, actually for decades and generations before Brother Russell's time, a great many uh, men were working in the field and Jehovah's Spirit was acting in the field. For example, even with the Reformation, Luther in the 16th century called the teaching that the soul was immortal and uh, the wicked were destined for eternal torment, part of the Roman dunghill of Decretos. So uh, he wasn't very tactful, but uh, he identified this false doctrine, later uh, abandoning that view. Then there was a great debate between various ministers of churches. William Tyndale stated, in putting departed souls in heaven, hell, and purgatory, you destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul proved the resurrection. So he saw that clear, about the soul was not immortal. The Unitarians in Europe and England and the United States exposed the Trinity, although some of these denied that Jesus was of divine origin. Sir Isaac Newton in the 17th century denied the Trinity and he wrote about the invisible presence of Christ. He also said that God put time prophecies in the Bible not to make men prophets, but to help them understand fulfillment of prophecy uh, when its fulfillment was underway. And uh, Sir Isaac Newton back then wrote about the time prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, and said that as far as he could see, the Messianic kingdom would not have full sway until the great multitude of Revelation chapter 7 was gathered from all nations. Well, that was quite a bit of insight back there. So this insightful work was going on. In England, an Anglican clergyman by the name of John Aquila Brown wrote a publication called Eventide in 1823, And he linked up the times of the Gentiles of Luke 21 with the seven times in Daniel chapter 4. As far as we know, he was one of the earliest to do that. And he believed that the Gentile times could end in 1917. We don't want to get the idea that Brother Russell was the first one that thought of linking up the end of the Gentile times with the kingdom of God. And then John Aquila Brown's concept was based on the other thing, the year-day concept that in prophecy sometimes a day of prophecy stands for a year in fulfillment and this was also a basis for our view of the gentile times brother russell later adopted uh, that concept and propounded it uh, anglican uh, edward bishop Elliot wrote four volumes in the 1840s before brother russell was born and these volumes were called her Apocalypta, dealing with the books of revelation and uh, he took up the Gentile times, and he felt that the Gentile times could end in 1914, though perhaps more likely 1923. Robert Seeley, uh, during the 1840s, wrote a publication in which he also took up the Gentile times and referred to 1914 as the end of the Gentile times. Joseph Seiss, a Lutheran preaching in Philadelphia, published a a magazine called the Prophetic Times. Interesting, later he changed the name to the Prophetic Times and Watchtower, again before Brother Russell was born, and he published that the Gentile Times would possibly end in 1914, though maybe 1923. I mean, there there were people working on this. William uh, William Miller, a Baptist clergyman in Vermont, became interested in the time prophecies, He looked at some other prophecies and dates from Revelation and Daniel, and connecting them up with certain historic events in the early Christian history, and he proclaimed the return of Christ in 1843, uh, and claimed the return would be visible, and of course the church would be burned up, and uh, the earth would be burned up, and then his followers saved. So there were also great stirrings in England and America on the issue of immortality of the soul and the state of the dead. In a book called The Bible Versus Tradition, Aaron Ellis writes in 1843 that there's a great debate that's gone on for centuries, and especially in the 19th century. And uh, he mentions that an outstanding proponent of the mortality of the soul was none other than Anglican Archbishop Watley of Dublin. And then uh, Jacob Blaine, a Baptist minister of Buffalo, published a book called Death Not Life, or The Destruction of the Wicked, in 1858, it says that the false teaching, uh, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul is a false teaching, and it says that there were 200 ministers expelled from their churches for teaching that the soul was mortal. All of this has happened before Brother Russell was born. Henry Grew of Philadelphia, originally a Baptist minister who preached in Providence and then Hartford, finally left the church altogether and set up his own uh, (coughs) city hall in Philadelphia. He published an exposé of the Trinity in the 1830s and a little later wrote a, a booklet called The Intermediate State in which he exposed the immortality of the soul. And George Storrs, who was a Methodist preacher in New England and New York State, he uh, found a tract of Henry Grew's, became interested in it, and fascinated by the concept that the soul was mortal. But he knew it was going to cost him his ministry in the Methodist Church. So he made a study of this for three years, a very sincere man. And uh, finally he published, wrote three letters to clergyman friend uh, in which he uh, writes about this doctrine, and they urge him to print this and distribute it so he redoes it into six sermons, and in one book called Six Sermons, he distributed that in 200,000 copies, and this again before Brother Russell was born. And uh, he published a magazine called The Bible Examiner, Brother Russell also submitted articles to that magazine, and uh, certainly George Storrs had a great deal of influence on uh, Brother Russell uh, he studied with Brother Russell. Brother Russell credits him for a great deal of help, and especially Storrs' views on the ransom, the Abrahamic promise, the state of the dead, and the mortality of the soul, and uh, also the final judgment. All of these concepts George Storrs had very well developed, and Russell benefited much from that. So this gives you a little idea of what was going on in the field. The Queen, and Weeds, and the Holy Spirit working. Now, Russell was not a theologian. He was not a known preacher He was an American haberdasher, in fact. That really didn't hurt. Uh, Jesus was a carpenter, and the apostles were generally fishermen. Uh, Amos, as a prophet, was a gatherer of fakes from the sycamore tree, so many of these servants of Jehovah were not professional theologians uh, or instructors. But uh, Russell was unable... To harmonize the concept of god's love with belief in eternal torment, and so he readily accepted the help and encouragement from george stores and others and uh, the difference between what russell did and what george stores and henry grew and uh, joseph Seiss and george stetson and others is these men did their work they were known for a little while and then when they died no one continued it. in the case of brother russell he from the early start of his work encouraged all those who believed to get involved in it, to get involved in preaching it, to build their lives around it. And so it is today, over a hundred years later, practically no one knows about George Storrs or Henry Drew, but a lot of people know about Charles Russell. Although he did not claim to have initiated these ideas, but he gathered them, pulled them together, and spread them to all parts of the world. Well now what Russell did was to begin a collective action now so now we could see the angels were binding these bundles of weeds and separating them out so they would no longer confuse the identity of the wheat class and the wheat class was now coming to the fore so that by the end of the gentile times and especially by 1919 it would begin to be clear who was letting their light shine and who was shining uh, like a light well now with the work that russell was doing they they not only gave talks, but they published newspaper articles and produced pamphlets and tracts and magazines and books. Uh, we turn we find out that it was providential that this work began in the United States because the United States was filled with people from all other countries. So what did these people do when they got the truth? Well, they, they sent the literature back to the old country, as it said. And uh, they would write letters and send literature and visit their families in Europe and other parts of the world and bring the truth with them. And so it was that the truth came to england in the 1880s in denmark in 1891 uh, brother russell visited there and a year or two later a danish american uh, shoemaker by the name of Sophus winter came back to denmark from america with supplies of the first volume uh, printed in dano norwegian and began the work there and the same thing happened in norway and sweden And Iceland the work got started by people living in the America who went back and brought the truth with them even a a Polish couple in the United States visited relatives living in Switzerland and then these in turn left Switzerland and went up to Warsaw and in that way the truth got started in Poland so now we can see it was providential that the work got restored in a country that was made up of all nations of the world because in that way the truth could readily spread in those early years as a matter of fact the, the work was well known uh, there's a, a series of encyclopedias called the national encyclopedia of american biography published in 1904 showing about the expansion of the work of the bible students and it has articles on people uh, it says here the leaders of the foundation Uh, and the founders and defenders of the republic and the men and the women who are doing the work and molding the thoughts of the present time. And in volume 12, there is an article about Brother Russell outlining the beliefs of the Bible students and the work that Brother Russell is doing, and it sums it up in this way. Those who accept Mr. Russell's expositions ignore all sectarianism, repudiate all denominational names, and hence are not found in any census reports. While his followers probably number less than uh, 50,000, and that year we had about 26,000 subscribers to the Watchtower, so they're pretty right on that, the influence of his teaching is believed to have been felt to some degree in every congregation throughout English-speaking Christendom, And uh, so it is interesting to see the extent of the work that was being done at that time. It turned out that it was providential that the work got started here too because in that way groups or congregations could become strong and with the financial structure of the united states on the expansion it would be possible for the organization of the united states to provide financial support for the work worldwide of course the word is not dependent on any one but we remember when jehovah had the israelites taken captive in babylon he knew That the wealthy Persians were eventually going to dominate Pavlan and they would finance the return of the Jews to Palestine so he could maneuver that situation to his purposes. And so it was with the United States. Many of those who came into the truth in the early years also were brothers and sisters of means. And uh, this enabled the work to get well established. And the same thing happened in England. And it it enabled the brothers to have the funds that were necessary. And uh, then Really, until the end of World War II and into the nineteen, well really until the 1960s, the uh, brothers in the United States were providing the primary financial uh, support for the work all over the world. Raven branches, exporting literature them and providing for that. Since the 1960s, many other countries, Japan, Australia, uh, Germany, Italy, France, England, the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands have all provided a tremendous amount of financial. Support, But for all that time, from the 1880s until 1960, the primary financial report, uh, support was from this country. Well now, of course, the question arises, how did the work become Brooklyn-based? Because the work Brother Russell and his group started there in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, and uh, we have said on occasion that perhaps the reason was that we needed to have a world harder where we could send literature to all parts of the world. Well, back in 1909, uh, when it was decided to move to Brooklyn, we weren't shipping out a lot of literature, but there was another reason for it, and the Watchtower of December 15th, 1908, gives an explanation of that. There weren't many Bible students back in 1908, and so during those early years of the first uh, ten years of the 1900s, the brothers were doing a great deal of preaching through newspapers. Brother Russell would write sermons, and then these would be transmitted by telegram, a modern means of communication back then to newspapers all over the country and then to Canada and other parts of the world and their kingdom message became available to millions of people that way but the brothers did run into a little resistance when uh, someone would come and say well you want to get this sermon emanating from Allegheny, Pennsylvania a lot of editors would say where's Allegheny what's that known for so notice what Brother Russell explains in this article He did say that the newspaper was one of the best means of reaching the reading public. But Brethren, familiar with newspaper methods, advise us that Allegheny is practically unknown, that Pittsburgh is noted more for its smoke and dirt, steel and iron, Homestead riot, and millionaires than anything along the lines of science, literature, or religion. They assure us that if the weekly sermons emanated from a more favorable quarter, it would possibly result in the publication of the sermons all over the United States that within a year there might be hundreds of papers publishing them regularly. Investigation and reflection seem to teach us that Chicago and St. Louis, although central in a large degree, so you see at that time they were thinking of the United States primarily, were central to a large degree. Uh, these have a stockyards and a big reputation for crime rather than a religious one, and Boston. <laughs> although cultured and scientific has a reputation for unorthodox fads along religious lines. Altogether, we concluded after seeking divine guidance that Brooklyn, New York, with a large population of the middle class and known as the City of Churches, would for these reasons be our most suitable center for the harvest work during the few remaining years. Besides this, the brethren of the office force always zealous to use their time, energy, and opportunities in holding meetings, We'll find in Brooklyn and surrounding cities a vast field only partially cultivated at the present time. Within the radius of a few miles resides seven and a half million civilized nations, the 200th part of the population of the whole earth, the 150th of civilization. There are more Jews in New York City than all Palestine, more Irishmen than in Dublin, the capital. We trust that our proposed move will commend itself to all of our dear friends. In our next issue, we will briefly explain to you some of the Lord's remarkable meetings in connection with the selection of the new Bible House. So it's interesting how they looked forward to, primarily, for uh, newspaper expansion. And it was also a good place to develop various language preaching. As a matter of fact, in 1644, Dutch Governor William Keff stated that in New Amsterdam, you could stand in any street corner in New Amsterdam and hear 18 languages spoken. And things haven't changed a whole lot since then. Uh, the convention report of 1911 says that the New York City body of elders represented 20 nationalities. So, in other words, it's a multi-language, multinational community which provides for the expansion of the work. And in later years, after World War One, and when we got our printing work going and were sending large shipments around the world, then New York Harbor was very providential and beneficial and even later with the sending out of Gilead students and their personal uh, effects, the sending out of construction uh, supplies and equipment, printing equipment, computer equipment, it's all been beneficial to have New York as a center. And who knows but what with the development of the United Nations, it's good for Jehovah's people to have a strong visible presence there as Jehovah's prophet. So we see the reasons for the move to New York. Now interesting here, uh, some years ago, in the Brooklyn newspaper of 1986, they quoted uh, Walt Whitman, and uh, he said uh, here that in 1861, Walt Whitman wrote that Brooklyn's destiny. He was an American poet, by the way. Brooklyn's destiny is to be among the most famous cities of the world. Well, it has become that, although not for the reasons Walt Whitman gave, because the uh, Brooklyn is known around the world more for being the headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses than anything else. There's more people that know about Jehovah's Witnesses than know about the Dodgers uh, who have moved out of Brooklyn anyway. Here's the reason now why the restoration of the work in the United States was providential, beneficial, a friendly environment for the starting of this little fledgling group of Bible students developing into a worldwide organization. And we know why they moved to Brooklyn and why they're still staying there. Well, we've seen other parts of the prophecies uh, fulfilled as well. During World War One, uh, the representatives of this Anglo-American world power, this little horn beast, certainly harassed the Holy Ones in Canada, in the United States, and in England a great deal. And yet Jehovah gathered his servants together, threw back that opposition and harassment, and the Holy Ones got started uh, reviving a preaching work, and today now, over 4.7 million creatures. support this uh, anointed ones supported by a great crowd are really doing a great work daniel's prophecy is being fulfilled in daniel 12 that those who are wise among the people will turn many to righteousness and that certainly is taking place now what i mentioned in this talk of course is is not to have a, a whole lot of historical trivia to remember that's not the point all these historical things we mentioned to give an impression an overview here's the way it happened but with the knowledge of the illustration of the wheat and the weeds and daniel's prophecy we can now see a direct connection between jehovah's witnesses of the 20th century and christians of the first century and it's not with apostolic succession or an unbroken line of appointments of overseers back to the first century and it's not with the appearance of the charismatic gifts of healing, although Jehovah's Witnesses do have the one strong evidence. And notice Time Magazine said the historic continuity of the Church should primarily be determined, the legitimacy of a Church determined by its fidelity to the teaching and mission of the Apostles. And with that, Jehovah's Witnesses come out clearly on top as the one true Church. Jesus said, "By this will all men know you are my disciples, in that as I have loved you, you have loved one for another." The worldwide brotherhood is clearly evidence that Jehovah's Witnesses are not just some 20th century or 19th century uh, religious phenomena. They're not a product of America. They're not of American origin, but they're of Christian origin, and they reflect Jehovah's qualities. Look at this: the worldwide brotherhood, the love, the unity that Jehovah's Witnesses look at their zeal to uphold Jehovah's name all around the world look at their zeal in preaching the good news of the kingdom look at their upholding the Bible as God's infallible world and defending it on every hand look at their uh, freedom from superstition, from spiritism and from the false morals of the world and their maintaining of holiness, the high moral standing where practically all of Christian has been, Christendom has been swept away with liberalism and permissiveness. And so we all need to keep our historic identity clear in mind that we are in fact Jehovah's servants. It's a real privilege. It doesn't make us better than others, but it's a wonderful privilege and an obligation to preach. It's a great privilege for those of the anointed to still be around sharing in the preaching work. And all those of us of the great crowd need to appreciate what a privilege it is to associate with Jehovah's organization represented by that faithful and discreet slave so we can understand these prophecies not because we have theologically trained brothers in the governing body but because we have spirit directed men who are serving Jehovah who are adding to their faith virtue and love and devotion and in that way they are growing in the accurate knowledge of Jesus Christ so it's a great privilege to consider these matters and uh, to do so perhaps in relationship to our new book, Jehovah's Witnesses, Proclaimers of God's Kingdom, to see our connection with Christians of the first century and to see that we have a privilege and a responsibility on the one hand to work together with the brotherhood and work at unity with one another, to work at unity with Jehovah's organization and then to zealously preach
1: the good news of God's kingdom. Grand and loving Father Jehovah, you with the conclusion of our activity here this evening and this fine talk to thank you very much that we have the opportunity to come here and, and to be instructed the way that we were, to build our faith so we can continue on serving you and to really appreciate, Father, that we are part of a true organization, part of your true people. We know perhaps that we had to buy out time to be here this evening, but it certainly was worth the effort because we certainly received much, Father, and we thank you so very much for that. We have a fine weekend's activity yet ahead of us, too, tomorrow with our special assembly day, and may we all prepare ourselves and our hearts and minds to be there, too, and be fully instructed by the fine program that's ahead of us as we look at Christ Jesus, our exemplar, and see how that we can look at his example, put it into use in our lives, and come off successful. So again, Father, we appreciate all the direction and guidance that we receive from you to help us on our... Our life's activity is serving you. We know we have many pressures upon us. We have our own flesh. We have Satan. But yet, with your help, we can resist these and conquer these and come out successful. So we always want to remember that and press on forward boldly and courageously to serve you right on to the end of this system and on into all eternity. So again, we pray you forgive us of our sins. We ask this and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.